0: It is such a privilege to be with you today and uh, I don't take it lightly uh, what you are offering me the, the platform to do. Uh, I'm feeling a little bit intimidated by the fact that I'm around so many people from the sciences. Uh, I'm a historian, I'm a humanities major by, uh, by every stretch of the imagination and so uh, I feel the weight of speaking to uh, people who uh, work in very different disciplines to me and it's a while since I was in PhD world so it, it is a, for me. A distant memory but I'm hoping what today gives you uh, some insight and some value uh, to add a little bit of value. I'm sure that a lot of what I tell you today will be things that many of you have heard before some of them and maybe there's only a small amount that's new and it may be that there are large amounts and small amounts it depends on who you are and so I just simply hope it works for you in your space and that there is something that you can grab hold of. In many respects, what I'll be doing is explaining to you some of the ways that the Center for Public Christianity does their work and why we do the work the way we we do. So, uh, without further ado, I'm going to uh, just put up this uh, PowerPoint. I slightly changed the title. I think I might have sent through an an, an earlier title, Public Faith in a Weird, Argumentative and Emotional World. Um, I want to start by saying that the cliche is that we live in very strange times. And while I would love to be so prescient as to be able to speak to exactly the very strange moment we're in right now, I don't have that skill. I don't really know what's going on with COVID and what that's going to look like. I'm speaking more of the strangeness that is starting to happen in a more long term sense, uh, independent of COVID. Uh, and when I say that we live in strange times. I'm talking about the long-term trend lines of how strange Christianity seems within our culture. Uh, And here I want to refer to the fact that Christianity is, in its public uh, presentation, becoming stranger within the culture. My boss is a guy called Simon Smart, and he tells the story of his wife, Michelle, going on a road trip with a non-Christian friend. And because they had a longer drive, there was more opportunity for conversation. And so this moment came, which like never happens, where this person turned to Michelle and said, what is it that you actually believe? Now, you know, we don't have those what must I do to be saved kind of moments regularly in our lives. But when we do, we want to nail them. And so Michelle Begins a discussion about Jesus's death and resurrection, how we've been created in the image of God, how we sin. You know, she goes through a gospel presentation because she's a gospel-shaped woman. And at the end of that presentation in that car, her friend looks at her and says, "You know, if I didn't know you so well, I'd swear you were mad." Now, I think if that's not your experience. It probably is going to be your experience at some point. Uh, Our culture is further distancing itself from the biblical story, such that when we share the story, it can sound quite strange to them on first hearing. And we share less and less of the framework and the assumptions of our culture. So a couple of years ago, Rory Shiner spoke to the postgrads at, at, at University of Sydney, and he talked about the fact that In the past, evangelism was really a form of religious intensification to the Australian culture. Australia was nominally Christian, and so then we had evangelists like Billy Graham come through and they would tell us, you've got to get serious about this God who you've been ignoring for most of your life. You're not Christian enough was the way that we did evangelism for many periods of the post-war generation. But to quote Rory again, we no longer share the culture's instincts in the present day. Less and less do we overlap with how they think. And so now the gospel is quite obviously an alternative, a a quite considerable alternative. And I think we do well, and we at CPX assume this, to assume it's a strange alternative. So to boil it down, right at this moment within the culture, I find it easier to assume I'm strange and that what I am saying sounds strange. Now, I'm not trying to be strange. I need to stress that. What I'm saying is that my assumption is that even though the gospel is meant to be true and good and beautiful in their ears, that on balance of probability, they may well hear it as weird, bad and a bit ugly. And here I need to reference the fact that there is a phenomenon within our everyday lives, which is sometimes been referred to as the curse of knowledge or sometimes called the curse of expertise. Uh, the curse of knowledge is a known phenomenon where once you know something, you find it hard to imagine what it's like not knowing it. Uh, this is where teachers get in a lot of trouble. Uh, they figured out that maths problem. They figured out that historical issue and they can't remember what it's like to be a student having to nut it out. Well, sometimes it's once something has made complete sense to me, it becomes very difficult to put myself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know it, because how can you not figure this out? You can't remember what it's like to be an outsider. And if you've grown up in a Christian or Christian adjacent environment, your life has had all these background conditions that made it a a kind of smooth way for you to be able to hear the gospel well. And so it sounds not weird to you but it sounds very strange to them. And so I think people are wrong about the gospel when they hear that it's weird and bad and a bit ugly, but it doesn't help the conversation if we assume that they're starting from a different place. Interestingly, at this point, I actually think we mirror the experience of some of the early Christians that we encounter in the scriptures. Uh, the first Christians were often not violently persecuted. Persecution was sporadic, was often local. Uh, but what was a constant experience for Christians, particularly within the Greco-Roman world in the earliest days, was that they were regarded as strange, even deviant within the eye of their names. So an example from the New Testament, which was read for us before, Paul proclaiming the gospel to the Greeks on the Areopagus And he's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And in verse 20, it says, You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. But then, even after he preaches, they easily, many of them, scoff. Now, that wouldn't have been a surprise to Paul. He knows that this is going to be the challenge of speaking into this environment. You can see from the way that he crafts his sermon, he's trying to not. Uh, avoid the problem of their worldview he's walking around their city and saying you are very religious but you don't fully understand and I'm going to proclaim something to you that is very different from what you presently know and so he works hard on connecting with them he knows that his gospel won't fit straight away into their categories but he connects with them and yet does not compromise the gospel in the process Now, here I need to say that in my own formation as a disciple, I haven't always fully prepared myself for how strange the gospel might sound to someone. Certainly, I knew that the gospel might have looked uncool. It might have looked socially awkward to a degree. But having to do with that, that might well be seen as a laughable weirdo, that's a bit next level. And it's actually harder to take on a personal level to know that you might be exposing yourself to that kind of evaluation. Uh, One of the contributors to CPX is a Canadian theologian by the name of John Stackhouse, and he's a theologian and an apologist, and he talks about the fact that we might share with someone about the fact that we're praying, that we are a prayerful person, and we might even dare to suggest to someone that we were praying to Jesus this morning, And and we would think nothing of that to talk about the fact that we were talking to Jesus this morning, that this morning we talked to a man who we know about who lived in first century Palestine. And, And we're quite comfortable with saying that. And he says, yet, if you had someone come up to you and say, by the way, I was talking to Julius Caesar this morning, then you would actually sit there and go, how about I call someone for you? You know, I mean, maybe, maybe you want to visit the hospital that is sometimes how we sound to people and in any culture you need to be able to acknowledge at what points the gospel might sound strange because just as it was strange to first century athenians it also is strange to 21st century people in sydney although for very different reasons so not only is it that our gospel sounds strange but also our behavior can seem strange it's not just that our behavior looks different It looks increasingly strange in the eyes of outsiders. So so when I committed myself to Christ in high school in the 1990s, I committed myself to practicing an orthodox sexual ethic. And and that conviction amongst my friends made me look a little daggy, uh, but it also made me look actually noble to them. They were kind of like, wow, Mark, you've, you've decided to... To to practice a kind of a monogamy and you want to be committed to people in marriage, that's that's noble. I, you know, I could never do that, Mark, but that's incredibly noble of you to do that. I admire your self-discipline. Well, I'm not in high school anymore, but my sense is that a conservative or traditional sexual ethic is now strange in a far more negative way, uh, because that Christian ethic is not associated with nobility, it's associated with shame or bigotry. Or repression Uh, and people would say to me I just don't get what you're doing Mark I I don't get it doesn't make sense to me that you would limit things in your mind like this. Now in this respect early Christians experienced something analogous Uh, not just that their proclamation was strange but that their behavior was seen as strange. It was perplexing and, and it was perplexing not necessarily in a jocular or kind of funny fashion It was, they were seen as deviant. So 1 Peter 4 verses 3 to 4 here, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Now, the reason I've highlighted the word surprise there is it's very similar to the word used in Acts 17, 20, talking about being strange it's the surprise of something that is perplexing it's 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 I'm not quite sure what you're doing but the following clauses within 1 Peter make it clear that their surprise ultimately issues forth in heaping abuse on them now in our time our behavior can seem strange and by strange I mean leading to snark And leading to abuse, but on the grounds, and here's the interesting point on the grounds that we are the immoral ones now. So, in my formation as a disciple, I've been trained to see Christians as the good guys, that Christianity's public posture to the world is that we position ourselves as the bastion of values. That's how we position Christian politics, it's how we position Christian schools within the world, that even though we might admit we are sinners, We think that our values are the best, even if we don't always live up to them. But that is not true anymore. What looks compelling to me might actually look appalling to them. And so, what looks true and good and beautiful feels to them instinctually false and evil and ugly. And so, as I live my life, I just assume intuitively that this person this group could look at my behavior and my ethics and it will come across as strange and even that my value system is a little bit screwy, that I think that is weird and not in a good way. Essentially, I assume I'm in the minority and I don't do that to be extra annoying, nor do I do that to play the victim. I don't do it to be quiet or deferential. I do it so that i can serve people better as i speak to them about jesus i just expect that my message will be easily misunderstood and that my lifestyle and values are probably going to be suspected and are going to require patient explanation and i need to do that from the position that they don't get me and i shouldn't assume that they do Uh, in this respect it's a little bit like the immigrant experience of being a minority within a major culture. And here I, I'm, I'm guided by my colleague at the, the Centre for Public Christianity, Justine Toh, who comes from an ethnic Chinese background. And she says, I would think it would be useful for Christians to learn to think through an immigrant lens, just in terms of the way of being able to speak and serve the culture. And I'll give you an example of this. Earlier this year, I was teaching at Christ College, the Presbyterian College in Burwood, and I had some students in my class who were um, uh, 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 Chinese uh, nationals out of Hong Kong. And they said to me, would you like to come out for dessert? And I didn't realize that Burwood has a dessert culture that goes long into the night because I come from the suburbs where the cafes close at three o'clock. And so they're saying, you know, well, no, Mark, it's 9.30. We're just getting started. But we want to take you to a, to a, to a, to a dessert place uh, from our tradition. But what was fascinating to watch was how hard they worked at going, we want to show you what this is like, but we also want to serve you by understanding you're probably going to think this is weird. And so they worked really hard at going, this is what the menu means. And and maybe you don't want to eat that one first. You want to eat this one first. And it was a wonderful experience. But what they did is they clearly understood that I would not get it. And therefore they reached out and acted as if they were in the minority Not because they wanted to be defensive and not because they hated their own culture, but because they wanted to make sure they could bring me in in the best way possible. The gospel is challenging enough on its own terms. We don't get any brownie points with God by making it easy to misunderstand and then congratulating ourselves for being so pure. We don't get brownie points by making it easy to misunderstand and then congratulating ourselves for being so pure. And so hence at CPX, we intuitively write with the secular person in mind. Uh, We pride ourselves on being an organization that does not write for our donors. Uh, We write for the people who our donors want to reach. But we don't write for the people who give us money. what I mean by that is we're not primarily that we write for the hardened atheist. Uh, the hardened atheist, one, is a comparatively small number within our culture. There's not that many hardened atheists. There might be more in academia. Uh, but we, And so we don't write for secularists. We write for the secular culture, uh, the broad mass of people for whom God is easily framed out of the picture, the ones for whom religion intuitively doesn't make a lot of sense and for those who look at Christian people and assume they're a little bit of a worry. That is who is in my mind as I'm writing. Uh, We sometimes assume that the general mood of Australian culture is a thin layer of resentment sitting on a sea of apathy. That's how we characterize the broad culture, a thin layer of resentment sitting on a sea of apathy. Now, to be sure in your departments as academics, you will encounter a more intense range of people, I am sure. Some of you will encounter people who are aggressively philosophical about their commitments to whatever it is they believe, whereas others will have far more pragmatic and functional friends who don't necessarily think it through at the level of kind of philosophical principle, but just simply take a a pragmatic stance. But the posture I would commend to you would be to become okay with being perceived as a little bit strange. And I really think you need to discipline yourself for that because it's not always easy to feel strange and stay Christ-like. Not not a lot of us like feeling strange. And it's hard on your soul to open yourself up to the potential for shame. And yet the love of God and my love of neighbour Calls me to carry my strangeness in a way that serves rather than hinders. Think of how many times in the New Testament it talks about the fact of not repaying evil with evil, not repaying insult with insult. That is hardcore spiritual formation right there. Because on the contrary, what we are called to is to repay evil with blessing so that we might inherit a blessing. And so one of the key spiritual formative disciplines of of this time is that we need to learn how to be perceived as strange without losing our Christ-like shape. How can I wear that without losing my Christ-likeness? And so I prepare my heart and my speech by assuming I'm a stranger. Like I said, I expect that my message might be easily misunderstood. And that my lifestyle and ethic is something where I'll have to explain myself. And so at CPX, what we do is we reverse a little the language of hospitality. Instead of just thinking about how we might welcome outsiders, we put ourselves sometimes in the position of the outsider who is seeking welcome. And so we try to talk about being good guests within the culture. We don't assume we own the culture we don't cry out for our entitlements with the media, we try and speak as good guests of the culture. And here I want to point out that in many respects some of our apologetics that we've learnt from the past may no longer work. So if I, I think about some of the apologetics methods I was raised on, uh, sometimes apologetics that I was formed in was formed on the kind of Christianity is the only rational response, and you're an idiot if you don't believe. And so we kind of proclaimed, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're an idiot because you could not possibly look at the evidence and draw any other conclusion. And then when it comes to being accused of being ethical, uh, uh, ethically medieval or something like that, uh, we find that hard to take from the culture. How dare you tell me that I'm being immoral? It's, it feels like being lectured on humility by Donald Trump. It's kind of, that's, that's ridiculous. Like how, wh- how could you tell me that I'm immoral? And yet I think it would be helpful for us to prepare and form ourselves as disciples for what it's like to feel strange and yet remain servant-hearted. Because we are strange and in one sense our strangeness is just sociological experience catching up with our theology because there is a theological sense in which we are already strangers within the world that God has made us strangers. This is the start of 1 Peter where it talks about the fact that we are God's elect exiles scattered throughout and he refers to the particular addresses of the letter but we retain that kind of stranger status because of God. So We are always strangers within the world theologically. And the fact that there are some moments in history where we feel like we fit in is really an anomaly uh, because from the divine perspective, we are always strangers within the world because we are people who follow another king. Uh, We are people who long for a better country. We are people who dance to a different drumbeat. Therefore, there is an irreducible strangeness to our faith and to our presence within the world. But here's what I want to stress out of that. People will sometimes think you are strange. This should not silence our voice, but should affect our tone. That's a big thing I want to get across to you today. It should not silence our voice, but should affect our tone. Now, I have been emphasizing that this strangeness is something we share with the early Christians. But there is a massive dimension which we don't share with early Christianity. Now, early Christianity was strange and was partly criticized within its culture because it was a new religious movement. Uh, In the ancient world, antiquity was one of the things that lent legitimacy to a religion, which is why there was a begrudging respect for Judaism, uh, that even though they thought they were weird, they had at least something that was old But Christianity, irrespective of the fact that it tried to tie itself to Judaism and was tied to Judaism, uh, was seen as a new religious movement begun just a few years ago with this Christ in Judea. And so because Jesus came on the scene yesterday, uh, they were not treated with respect. They were seen as innovative and innovative is bad in religion in the ancient world. So they were hammered because Christianity was new. But that is not our context. They carried the burden of being new. We carry the burden of being old. Uh, By wearing the name Christian, we inherit baggage. Now, that baggage is both good and bad. But at the moment, I want to focus on the bad. Uh, Now, this can come as a surprise to some of us. And the reason is that for some of us, our knowledge of church history is about as old as our youth pastor. Uh, We kind of think that, you know, Christianity began maybe 20 years ago when our church was planted or something like that. But in actual fact, you carry the baggage, whether you like it or not, of 2000 years of Christian history. And indeed, you carry the baggage of what Christians are doing all around the world. You mightn't like what evangelicals in the United States are doing. That might be very clear, but you carry the baggage for them to some degree. And part of our perceived strangeness to the culture does come from our past. Now, here I want to say, sorry, that's just repeating the point I made before. We carried the burden of being old, but here I want to say we aren't determined by our past, but nor can we escape it. We aren't determined by our past. The past doesn't set our agenda entirely, but we can't live as if it didn't happen. History does affect us, and it affects our posture within the world, and that is the reason why most recent apologetics books talk about history. Uh, So John Dixon brought out a book this year, which is a a little bit of a follow-up to something we brought out a year earlier, uh, focusing on the good and the bad of the Christian church. Probably the most popular apologetics book at the moment is the one in the middle by Tom Holland, who's not a Christian, but who does a history of the Western mind, basically saying, you don't realize how much Christians have influenced our morality so that our culture is Christian, even though it doesn't know it's Christian because it's imbibed Christian values and the left and the right have just picked their version of Christian values. So he goes to the point of basically saying the political left and the political right are fighting a Christian war with one another, even though only one of them thinks that they come from the Christian heritage. Now, all I'm trying to say there is history matters. History matters and it affects us that the past experience of Christians does colour the way that we are heard and perceived within our present culture. But, of course, we know that when it comes to a person receiving the gospel, it's far more personal than that that the history we are dealing with in a person's life is a personal history, not just some grand meta history of the Western world. And so here again, my assumption is that people have likely had a negative experience of the church. Now, this is not always true. The church has not always been bad and the church has often done brilliant things. But what I'm saying is it's better for me to assume that that might have happened than to assume that it hasn't. I go back to the fact that it is often a thin veneer of resentment on a sea of apathy. But when I speak about the church and Christianity in Christ, I want my ears open. And even as I defend the faith and critique the culture, I'm always wanting to grant legitimacy to their past experiences where understandable. Let me give you an example of this. We have a column that we put out on Facebook and various other social media every week. Uh, two of us write a short column each week called Thinking Out Loud. It's, it's a 250-word piece, and it's honestly uh, what it says, Thinking Out Loud. It's not the finished article. It's not, not, not publishable and all that kind of stuff other than in socials. And uh, a week ago, I wrote on the use of the song Imagine at the opening ceremony for the Tokyo Olympics. Now, the song Imagine I do not like very much. I find John Lennon's song uh, pretty ridiculous. I find Lennon himself hypocritical. And yet I wrote that column by beginning with, there's something intuitively that makes sense about why someone would write that song. Because for many people intuitively, imagining there's no religion is to imagine a better world. And I have to start there because I know that so many people's experiences, if you could get rid of religion, you could get rid of the problems of the world. I do that even though it may not be everybody's experience because I don't think I lose if I overassume that people might have had a negative experience of the church or at least that my ears are open. Again, I want to suggest our baggage should not silence our voice, but it should affect our tone. See, tone, which is not talked about enough, I think, in Christian circles has to do not with changing content, but with understanding what message is being received. I remember a book many years ago by uh, Hugh McKay, uh, the social researcher, uh, called Why Don't People Listen? And he talked about the injection theory we have of communication. Now, injections are all on our brain right at the moment, but we have this idea that injections is what happens when we communicate with someone which is that we put our message in our in our syringe and we inject it into someone's arm and they receive it exactly as we've injected it but that's not what happens in communication that you can say something you can give the most perfectly crafted piece of communication but you then actually have to ask someone what did you hear me say what did you hear me say because something happens in human communication called interpretation And interpretation happens on every form of communication and I need to know what is going on when you hear me say Jesus, when you hear me talk about the gospel, when you hear me talk about the church and Christian faith. And I guess what I'm looking for is for us to consider Christian persuasion in an argument culture. Our present cultural moment is one in which arguments are frequent and they are ugly. Uh, So we love to argue in our culture, uh, but as a book like Alan Jacobs, How to Think Makes Clear, uh, we're mostly bad at the way we argue. And what that does is that that makes everybody who's a participant in arguments in the culture just want to yell louder. And for others, it might then encourage other people to just never argue at all. And so there's this kind of twin things of I'm going to yell or I'm going to be entirely silent. And I see that happening within the culture. You're either a yeller or you're quiet as a church mouse. And yet I'm going to say to you, we have to argue with one another because so many things in our life require persuasion. I need to be persuaded to eat the right foods. I need need to persuade someone to marry me. I no longer need to do that, but I did need to persuade her. I'm not quite sure how I did it to be. honest Uh, you need to persuade my kids to reduce their screen time because I'm not evidently winning that battle Uh, you need to persuade people to consider the Lord Jesus we have to persuade one another but we need to recognize that ideas are powerful and so human beings are powerful creatures we are physically powerful but we are also intellectually powerful our ideas are powerful they can change the world we form and transform the world because of how we think so just like any form of power we should unleash our ideas with care and with a heart for service because to change someone's mind is a massive deal even if it's just one person and of course to be God's instrument in helping to change someone's mind yes the work of the Holy Spirit but using you that is a an enormous thing to do, but I want to frame my acts of persuasion. This is is where it's critical. I want to frame my acts of persuasion as gifts of love and service, not as moments for personal victory. If I'm arguing with you, I want to do it because I love you and I want to serve you by us both finding what is true and good and beautiful. And so much Christian persuasion, which I have practiced, has been not so much about trying to offer people a gift, but about being seen to be right and feeling offended when people don't think that I'm right. And so Alan Jacobs calls this talking for victory. So we might think that the gospel is always best served by winning arguments at whatever cost. But I want to suggest to you that once we've stopped seeing our conversation partner as someone I love and instead seeing them as someone I defeat, then everything is lost in a gospel conversation. Because we live in an argument culture which rips and tears and cancels and screams. And so many of our metaphors, if you think about it, for discussing ideas are war metaphors. I defeated their position. I attacked their point but followers of Jesus are not meant to argue like the culture because by the renewing of our minds our witness is not only by the content of our speech but by the manner of our speech and here you could do little better than engage with the work of someone say like uh, Tim Mulhoff from Biola University and his book Winsome Persuasion. Uh, Tim Milhoff is a communications professor at a Christian college in the United States. Now, you might never have thought that you needed a Christian communications professor, but see, he brings you powerful insights about what is going on in communication and then to think through what would it mean to do that in a Christ-like fashion. Uh, he has several works on communicating with those who do from us and reaching out to persuade, but in a manner that is filled with compassion and empathy. Here's my guess, and this graph isn't going to work and I apologise for the drawing right now, but I find that there's sometimes an inverse relationship between the amount of apologetics books that people read and the amount of persuasive ability they have. So that by the time someone's read seven apologetics books, they're hopelessly not persuasive except to themselves because they know how to destroy people, but they don't know how to win people. And so I want to suggest to you, That The Christian persuader offers their voice as an act of love and love by the way compels me to speak in public but it compels me to speak with grace and humility and kindness and compassion because love transforms tone. And that mention of apologetics leads me to consider how we are commending the faith today. You will already have imbibed the sense that I I think the apologetic challenge these days has changed its shape because in the past defending the faith was about fighting for the truth of Christianity, but now it's switched to defending the goodness and beauty of Christianity as well. It's not the truth doesn't matter, but goodness and beauty are often the gatekeepers before you can even get to truth. And in some respects, we shouldn't overestimate this shift. It, it's kind of always been there. A book I read uh, last year was Unbelievers, An Emotional History of Doubt by the British historian Alec Ryrie, who points out the fact that that throughout history, most of us uh, make emotional decisions first and then use our reasoning to back up how we've emoted, Uh, and and that this happens all throughout history. Here he's following uh, the insights of the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, Uh, But also the British novelist Julian Barnes, who says, most of us make an instinctive decision, then build up an infrastructure of reasoning to justify it. Well, what Riri does in his book is that he goes back to the 17th and 16th centuries and shows that before you had philosophical atheism, you had emotional atheism. You had people who were angry and anxious about the faith and the philosophical arguments followed afterwards. The anger came first. And so the basic point is that emotions often precede the reasoning, and that even once you get to the reasoning, there's still often an emotional force to the arguments. And so most arguments against the gospel come with emotion, and if you ignore the emotions, that's unhelpful. The next thing I want to say is about apologetics is that most of our apologetics throughout Christian history, and here I'm quoting John Stackhouse again, have been directed at the issue of credibility. Is it true? But nowadays we're faced with a prior question, which is the question of plausibility, which is might it even possibly be true? Is Christian argument something I should seriously entertain even for a moment? And if you don't deal with the question of plausibility, You can't really get to the questions of credibility. Uh, If Christianity is seen as implausible, then people will not check out the evidence because it's like inviting people to an alpha course to investigate whether the moon is made of green cheese. Nobody is going to go to that alpha course. Nobody's going to go to the alpha course on whether we faked the moon landing. Okay, You can sit there and say, come check out the evidence as much as you want. For most people, that's implausible. Once Christianity is seen as implausible, the credibility arguments are no longer compelling until you've dealt with the plausibility questions. And so in the apologetics of someone like Josh Chatra or in his book, Telling a Better Story, he says the problem is not that they just find Christianity unreasonable, they find it irrelevant or even distasteful, which means they're not even going to check out the reasonability of it. It's not even attractive enough to warrant a look If you look at apologetics books, like in 1968, Paul Little wrote, know why you believe, and it was all about the credibility of the gospel. Even when Tim Keller wrote Reason for God in 2008, it's still mostly about credibility issues, but you can start to see plausibility issues. Then by the time Keller writes in 2016, Making Sense of God, the vast majority of issues are plausibility issues, which have to be removed before you can give them reason for God. He wrote making sense of God because you couldn't just give reason for God straight away to them. So it's not enough to recognize that people uh, uh, have arguments against the gospel. You need to recognize that their framework makes the gospel implausible. And so to go back to something from Josh Trattler, we need to recognize that Someone has different assumptions, not enough to recognize that someone has different assumptions and common sense thinking that differs from us. We need to learn to step into their story before pointing them to the way out. We must then engage their story to target their assumptions and invite them to consider the Christian story by beginning within their own story, listening for hints of the larger and smaller narratives that inform their life, and showing how the prevailing cultural narrative that they love fails to live up to their deepest aspirations. It's trying to work out what's the story you're living out of and then how can I show you that the story you're living out of cannot actually fulfill your longings. We at CPX regard the longings of the secular culture as an important connection point to the culture. Now, there are problems with this theologically that I know that people can raise, which is to say that the human heart is an idol factory and the human heart is a truth suppressor and the human heart is perverted, and so therefore our longings are not a perfect guide, but by common grace and the fact that we are made in the image of God, there is the capacity to connect with people's longings in such a way to show them that only the gospel can meet those true longings for things like justice, for things like identity, for things like forgiveness, for things like significance, for things like community, for things like uh, global creation care, What we are doing within our apologetic to the world is trying to look for cracks in the secular. We're trying to look at the secular worldview and sit there and go, these are the things where the secular worldview, when you tease it out, it's ultimately, it has these hopes which they cannot fulfill. It has these dreams that are continually frustrated because they do not know the true and the living God. And we're seeking to connect even as we critique as i finish up i guess i want to commend to you that at cpx we know we're strange but we actually try and embrace it with a slogan and we call it let us surprise you we want to actually be genuinely surprising to the culture but in a good way a way that says i wasn't expecting you to say that most of the time they're still going to go we don't agree with you But the letter surprise you is that was surprisingly thoughtful. That was surprisingly kind. That was surprisingly compassionate. That was surprisingly interesting. That was strange in a way that is actually potentially positive. I talk about it in terms of this metaphor that I'm not looking in terms of my presentation to whack people over the head with a 4B2. I'm trying to be a pebble in the shoe. Because you know what a pebble in the shoe is like? You walk on it but you can't shake it and it gets to that point where eventually you have to look at it. And that's what I'm trying to do with some of my work. I'm trying to be a pebble in the shoe and have people sit there and go, what that person said in that article and that presentation has got me sufficiently intrigued that I might actually go and check out that church course. I might actually go and have that conversation with that Christian friend. I think that is what is called for us in a weird argumentative, An emotional world. And with that, I'll draw things to a close.